Welcome, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most brutal, the most heinous homicide cases in Maryland are examined and profiled. On this season, season three, relationship murders or husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend type murders are discussed and profiled. On this episode, the beating murder of 22-year-old Yardley Reynolds Love is profiled and the unsolved homicide of 32-year-old transgender Crystal Edmonds is discussed. Money, power, prestige. Sometimes having all of this can save you in a court of law and sometimes it can't. In the high-profile murder case of George Wesley Hughley, having money didn't work. Born in Washington, D.C. and raised with a nanny in one of the richest and wealthiest counties in Maryland, George grew up rich and wealthy in Chevy Chase and Potomac, Maryland. His mother was a part-time model at Saks Fifth Avenue and his father was a self-employed successful investor. George's great grandfather founded their wealth in the lumbar business with his great-grandfather co-founding the Gallagher and Hughley Lumbar Yard in Northwest Washington DC way back in 1912. His family invested in lumbar, racehorse, racehorses, and a 1,000 unit apartment building. Enjoying their wealth and prestige, although his parents had divorced when he was a young child, George still spent his time with both of his parents who lived in affluent, expensive, and a lavish lifestyle. His family had a five-bedroom beach house on the Outer Banks of North Carolina. They had a $2 million vacation home in Palm Beach, Florida. His father had four, a 40-foot four, yacht that he named The Real Deal. His family had lifetime memberships at Columbia Country Club and Chevy Chase the Annapolis Country Club, and the Corinthian Yacht Club. This kid went to private school Mata Day in Bethesda, then on to the prestigious private all-boy landing school in Bethesda, where tuition ran over $25,000 a year. All this education, vacation, homes, yachts, he laid his head in a million-dollar brick home on a 1.5-acre lot in Potomac, Maryland, the 29th richest zip code in the United States. As a student at the prestigious Landon private school, it this he played he was an athlete. He played football where he was the quarterback for his senior year and he played all-American lacrosse. There was a huge blemish on all this all-American boy that was blessed to be born into a lifestyle of privilege, prestige, money and wealth. It was just one major flaw. George had a serious alcohol problem that began in his teens. In 2007, George was charged in Florida with underage possession of alcohol. In 2008, he was arrested and charged with public drunkenness outside the Psi Kappa Sigma fraternity house in Washington, C.T. after he resisted arrest and called the arresting officer a bunch of racial slurs. George was so drunk, so out of it, so violent, 
that he had to be tased in order to get under control. Now, because of these drunken outbursts and incidents like this, he got a slap on the wrist sentence of a 60-day suspended sentence, a fine, community service, six months of probation, and he was ordered to complete a drug and alcohol program. Although George did complete his drug, his court-ordered obligations, he told none of this to the staff at the University of Virginia, where he was accepted after graduating from Landon. The president of the University of Virginia, where a single year of tuition is $29,000 minimum, this was George's dream school, and he played midfielder for the men's lacrosse team, the Virginia Cavaliers, while majoring in anthropology. While in college, while there, George met 22-year-old Yardley Reynolds Love. Described as bright, smart, bubbly, Yardley's upbringing was slightly different than George's, but not by much. She also grew up in a two-parent household where her family focused on education and excellence, making these qualities a top priority in their family. Yardley's father, who passed away from prostate cancer in 2003, he was an investor and for a time, Yardley was born and raised in Baltimore before her family relocated and moved to Cockeysville. Yardley graduated from the all-girl Catholic school, Notre Dame Preparatory School in Towson, where she excelled as a member of the varsity lacrosse and field hockey team all four years of high school where she made all-county lacrosse player in 2006. A full-blown national, natural-born athlete and a force to be reckoned with on the field, Yardley went on to the University of Virginia and majored in government and minored in Spanish. Of course, she played lacrosse for the school, the Cavaliers, and even scored a goal on her first game where they played against Virginia Tech. Yardley enjoyed her college college life experience pledging with the seniority Kappa Alpha Theta. According to their friends, George and Yardley had a turbulent relationship with lots of fights and with each of them constantly accusing each other of cheating and whatnot. And the two broke up, they got back together, they broke up, they got back together, off and on for about two years. On the early morning hours of May 3rd, 2010, Around 2.15 a.m., Virginia police were called to Yardley's apartment on 41st Street in the University Corner District in Charlottesville, Virginia, after her roommate came home and found her lying face down on the floor on a bloody pillow. Her roommate thought that maybe Yardley had drank too much, so she called 911. But when paramedics and the police arrived at her apartment and found Yardley lying face down in the yellow, white, yellow and white pattern, pillowcase that was heavily stained with blood, they knew this was no case of alcohol poisoning. Wearing only underwear, Yardley had bruises and scratches to her face, buttocks, legs, forearm, and chest. Her right eye was swollen shut. She was completely unresponsive and not breathing at all. Just days away from graduation day, on May the 23rd, Yardley was pronounced dead at the scene. The police didn't have much work to find out. They didn't have to do much work to find out who the killer was either because in this case, the killer had decided to kick her locked front door in, leaving an obvious gaping hole. 
After talking to Yardley's friends and discovering that her laptop was also missing, the detectives decided to start with the ex-boyfriend. They went right next door to where George lived. Perhaps he was thinking, oh, I can probably talk my way out of this like before. Or maybe he was thinking that whatever was going to happen with the detectives probably wouldn't be anything too serious anyway. The senior agreed to come to the police station with the detectives. He was nonchalantly and casually dressed in a black shirt, black shorts, and black flip-flops like this was just a normal day. And he agreed to be questioned without a lawyer. During questioning by the detectives, George admitted that he might have kicked through her bedroom door a little and confronted her about a fight over some dude who she supposedly kissed. And, oh yeah, he admitted that he might have wrestled and fought with her a little, but she started banging her own head against the wall, and she was the aggressor against him. And when he left her, her nose, it, it, it just may have been bleeding a little bit. Even though he had bruised fingers, bruised knuckles and hands, he told the detectives, oh yeah, I got these from playing lacrosse. He continued to just downplay his role in the fight, dance around every subject until the detectives told him that Yardley had died. That's when he zapped out. His whole demeanor changed and he kirks out on tape, on his confession tape saying, no, she's not dead. I never heard her. I never struck her over and over and over. For 10 minutes on his confession tape, he's like, she's not dead. How can she be dead? There's no way. I never hit her. I never struck her. Please tell me you're lying. You're lying to me. There's no way. Kill me. Kill me, he says as he finally stands up to be, you know, put in handcuffs. The detectives don't buy this act with the crocodile tears, and he was arrested and charged with first-degree felony murder, robbery of a residence, burglary, entering, ho entering a house with an intent on committing a felony, and grand larceny. In all, the detectives confiscated two Apple laptops, a spiral notebook, two white socks, a bathroom rug, the front entryway rug, and a Virginia State lacrosse shirt that was stained with blood. On her computer, they found threatening emails from George with him saying stuff like, I should have killed you, just days before she was basically beaten to death. Yardley had responded with stuff like, I have never been in a relationship like this and I don't know what to do. Held at the Albemarle Charlottesville Regional Jail, George, the senior, was held without bail. News of Yardley's murder at the hands of her ex-boyfriend stunned the campus and a candlelight vigil was held for Yardley on May 6, 2010. My hope for Yardley and for you is that her dying inspires an, an anger, a sense of outrage that engages determination here and wherever Yardley's name is recognized that no woman, no person in this place, this community, this state, or our nation need fear for her safety or experience violence for any reason. This is what the president of the University of Virginia commented at the, at the vigil. Her murder, her murder completely devastated her friends and her family. Yardley was supposed to be her sister's maid of honor at her upcoming wedding, and her funeral was held at the Cathedral of Mary, our Queen, on May 8, 2010, and over 2,000 people attended to pay their respects to this athlete. 
when George's case went to trial, his lawyers gave a defense saying that Yardley's murder wasn't premeditated at all, but the killing was just an accident that had a tragic outcome. The prosecutors painted something totally different. They painted a picture of a violent, drunk ex-boyfriend who couldn't control his temper, who often got into fights. His teammates and friends all testified against him in court, telling the court about an incident in February of 2009 where one of his teammates was woken up with a sucker punch to the face after George had heard that he had kissed Yardley. His teammates testified that they had witnessed a fight between the couple and members of the visiting team, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Those members had to break them up. During the two-week trial, another friend testified where she had witnessed George attack Yardley while he was stinking drunk, which is what led up to why Yardley decided to break up with him for good. And on the day that she was killed, George had spent the entire day drinking and playing drinking and playing golf at a father's son golf tournament. This was like 8, 9 a.m. and dude was basically drunk already. He was just basically a drunk who couldn't control his temper or his drinking and beat his girlfriend to death in that, in that room after he kicked his way in. So end of story, end of story. His lawyers tried their best. Oh, they was this, this was just an accident. Maybe she died from when the EMS workers did CPR. Or maybe she died from the alcohol and Adderall that was mixed in her system. No, it, it, maybe it could have been an aneurysm. Or it was a heart attack. Or maybe she had... Look, stop reaching. He beat the girl to death in her room. On February 22nd, 2012... George stood and made the sign of the cross as a Virginia jury of seven men and five women found him guilty of second-degree murder and grand larceny after deliberating for nine hours. And on August the 30th, 2012, George was sentenced to 26 years, 25 for the murder, and one year for stealing her laptop. I'm so sorry for your loss, and I hope you find peace. George said to Yardley's mother at his sentencing hearing, which lasted over three and a half hours. George's family just couldn't let it go. And through their attorney, they issued a statement that said, it's a sad day for our family. We continue to believe what our attorney said within hours of meeting Georgie on May 3rd, 2010. Yardley's death was not intended, but an accident with a tragic outcome. And George appealed his case and his convictions several times. His case even made it all the way to the Supreme Court in 2015, but his appeal was denied every single time. His mother even went as far as appearing on the Today Show, saying what happened to poor Yardley was just an accident. So you accidentally beat somebody to death? Yeah. And she said Georgie shouldn't have gotten convicted of second-degree murder, and Georgie should have only been convicted of a lesser charge like manslaughter and faced less prison time because Georgie was such a good boy and Yardley's mother was, her murder was just a drunken accident with no intent to kill anybody. Like, wow. <sighs> so on September 29, 2010, to honor her memory, 
Yardley's family established the Yardley Reynolds Love Foundation Incorporation, also known as the One Love Foundation. The foundation's main mission or goal is to encourage and develop social qualities that make up the core person of how Yardley was. One Love, the foundation encourages its members to show all the core values of service, kindness, humility, and sportsmanship. The foundation would like to bring out the Yardleys in everyone by igniting the spirit of One Love in children and young adults, encouraging them to choose a path of goodness. Yardley's mother, this is what she commented to reporters. The Virginia Lacrosse Alumni Network and the Virginia Athletes Foundation established a Yardley Reynolds Love Women's Lacrosse Endowed Scholarship. This scholarship is giving out to one lucky player of the women's lacrosse team every year in Yardley's honor. On April 21st, 2012, Yardley's mother filed a $29.45 million wrongful death lawsuit against George's family asking for $29.45 million in compensatory damages and $1 million in punitive damages. And on May 1st, 2012, Yardley's mother filed the same lawsuit against the University of Virginia men's lacrosse head coach, the assistant head coach, and the director of athletes, saying that they were totally, grossly negligent in allowing George to remain on campus, let alone the lacrosse team, where they were well aware that he had an alcohol and a violent, out-of-control anger problem. Lacrosse, the, she alleged in her lawsuit that the school also knew about the threats that he had been making to Yardley, and they did nothing. George wasn't suspended. George wasn't expelled. George wasn't recommended or referred for alcohol treatment. Basically, nothing was done. But on July 23rd, 2018, 2013, Yardley's family dropped both of their lawsuits because of delay after delay after delay, and eventually the cases were both dismissed without prejudice or closed on June 11th, 2018. George still has the possibility for some type of future. With a release date of May 30th, 2030, with good behavior, he could be out of prison when he is 42 years old. Now, although this crime, this homicide did not happen in Maryland, it is still notorious. It is still a notorious homicide in Maryland because both Yardley and George were from the state of Maryland. Um, this case received national attention because here you had two well-affluent lacrosse players involved in a domestic violence situation that turned deadly. Um, this case was profiled on Inside Edition. It was profiled on um, a lot of true crime websites, um, emphasizing the importance of reporting when you are being abused, physically abused. And when I mean by reporting, I mean reporting it to the police. I mean, uh, it's a sad situation all around. Um, he had a serious alcohol problem. I believe he should have never been allowed on campus without some type of treatment, without some type of documented treatment. Um, 
money cannot solve everything. It's it's a shame to be blessed with, you know, money and finances and prestige and all this other stuff, and then basically just to throw it all away on an alcohol addiction. I believe his mother is in total denial. Um, it hasn't been documented anywhere where he received uh, treatment for alcoholism or anything like that when he was growing up. Um, she, how could she say that his death was, or that Yardley's death was just a drunken accident? Even if it was a drunken accident, he deserved the maximum sentence for that. Um, it's, I just, I'm just appalled by the parent's behavior or her, the mom's behavior over this. Like the girl died and he killed her. He, he beat her to death. Whether it, how do you accidentally beat somebody to death? That's. That's the question I want to know. How do you accidentally beat someone to death? You know, I just can't. And the fact that he still has the chance for somewhat of a normal future. He'll be young when he gets out. 42 years old. And I can promise you, he'll have money to come home to. And Yardley's family has to live with that. So I believe the sentence was justified in this case. I believe he got what he deserved. Um... It's, it's just an all-around sad situation. Um, I also just can't understand how the, how, you know, I, I would not have, I wouldn't have dropped the lawsuits. I believe there was still, you know, claims or basis for lawsuits against the family because, like I said, nothing was done. Absolutely nothing was done. And like I said also, because this crime took place in Virginia. Maryland still considers this consider the crimes of the, consider this murder as one that is had a lot of influence in Maryland because both of the victims were from Maryland. You know, George's family should consider this as a lesson that, you know, money can't solve everything. Money can't buy everything in this case. Maybe he might have just had a little bit too much. And with all that money, maybe they should have done something better with it, like put him in rehab, put him in alcohol or AA or whatever, and gotten him some type of help because, as you can see now, his life will, he's, his, he, he does have a chance of a, a normal life when he's released. But those lacrosse days are over. Your college life is over or your college life that is not involved around an institution I should say is over now for this season season three each unsolved homicide will profile a victim who was transgender while conducting my research on unsolved homicide victims in Maryland I was completely shocked completely surprised at the number of transgender victims where absolutely no investigation was done. No investigating, no questioning of family members, no questioning of friends, no canvassing the area, nothing. It was like they got killed. Everybody just assumed everything was sex-related, like they was tricking, where they wasn't supposed to be tricking or whatever, and they just, they, they, left it, they left it at that. So for this season, season three, the spotlight on all of the unsolved homicides that are profiled, the victims were transgender. On this episode, the unsolved shooting death of 32-year-old Crystal Edmonds is profiled.
On Friday, September 16, 2016, someone shot 32-year-old Crystal Edwards twice in the back of her head a little after 3 a.m. in the 3600 block of Fairview Avenue in the Forest Park neighborhood of West Baltimore. I heard the shots. This is getting so bad. I heard the shots and then my cousin called me and said she called the police, a neighbor told reporters for the Baltimore Sun. When Baltimore City Police and paramedics responded to the area around 3.18 a.m., they found Crystal lying on the sidewalk bleeding. She was rushed to a local hospital but pronounced dead at 11 a.m. Crystal had lived in southwest Baltimore. On September 19, 2016, three days after she was killed, about 50 people gathered in the Why Not lot in the station area, station north area of north of Baltimore City, to honor Crystal's life and memory. The vigil was organized by the Baltimore Trans Alliance, Black Trans Advocacy, and Black Trans Men's Incorporation. We are in full-fledged mourning for our sister Crystal. She was much loved and will be greatly missed. We are tired of being targeted, maimed, and murdered. We are tired of all the murders and beatings, a leader of the Baltimore Trans Advocacy commented to reporters for the Baltimore Sun. Even though that area of Northwest Baltimore City is well known by its residents for prostitution in that area, the police are not commenting or saying whether or not they think that Crystal's murder is related to prostitution and they have very few leads, if any, people. Come on now. This is another murder that needs to be solved. It needs answers. You know, not a whole bunch of questions and why this and why that and why were they doing this and blah, blah, blah. This is a murder that needs to be solved. Somebody got executed, shot twice in the back of the head. If you have any information at all that can lead to an arrest or conviction in this unsolved homicide, please call detectives at 410-396-2100 or 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can also submit a tip online at www.metrocrimestoppers.org or you can submit a text to 443-902-4824. You can remain anonymous, people. Surely, man, somebody got to know something. Whether or not you want to report it or not, you, you got to know something. Clear your conscience. Once again, that number is 410-396-2100 or 1-866-7-LOCKUP. You can also submit a tip online at www.metrocrimestoppers.org or you can submit a text to 443-902-4824. You can remain anonymous. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast for updates on future spine-tingling bizarre episodes. Also, please be sure to check out all of the true crime books that are related to this podcast Maryland's Most Notorious Murderers, 1990 through 2008, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1, and Maryland's Most Notorious Murderers, 2009 through 2020.
All of these books, as well as my other true life books, are all available on Amazon.com. Be sure to tune in next week where another high-profile homicide will be examined, profiled, and discussed on Maryland's most notorious murders. This has been a real-life production.